God's word to, uh, to the minor prophet of Nahum uh, between Micah and Habakkuk. When we close out the series of messages in Nahum this morning, I was thinking as we were singing those songs, uh, it's quite appropriate that we uh, sing praises in regards to our redemption. Uh, it, it may providentially be provided as, a, as some groundwork uh, for, or a safe place for us to stand as we uh, talk about uh, in Nahum the judgment of God and the wrath of God. Uh, I think sometimes I, I thought about this this week, but as Christians, particularly if we've been Christians a long time, we've, we spend so little time uh, remembering what it was like to be a sinner and thinking about the great peril we were in that we, we, we almost lose our sense of the treasure that we have in Christ. Uh, I remember a quote, uh, uh, I don't remember the exact quote, but I remember some of the discourse of Martin Luther uh, where he would made reference to, uh, to some folks need to sin, uh, to be reminded of just how inclined we are to sin and how by disposition we are so natured in that direction. And I think his, his point there was that they had, they had sanctified themselves to the point that they no longer realized what a precarious place it is to be a sinner. I'll be sharing from Hebrews chapter 3 tonight where Paul, or where the writer of Hebrews warns even those believers of this danger of not learning from the errors of their past and falling away from God. And, and that's really what I've been thinking about in, in Jonah and Nahum. I think they are companion books. Uh, one of the gleanings that you can get from that is uh, the mercy of God is long-suffering. And as Jonah says, uh, he relents concerning the calamity that he has foretold, but not forever. Uh, there is a relenting and a deliverance from those things forever in Christ. But if we, if we return to the sinful lives apart from Christ and that mercy won't go on forever, there will be a time when that mercy will be withdrawn and there will be nothing left but judgment. And that's what Nahum is. And I've shared from this, even from Jonah, I'm convinced that this is the message that Jonah wanted to preach to Nineveh. This is what he wanted Nineveh to experience. They were a godless nation and they were certainly a threat to Israel in so many ways. And it seems to me like Jonah, Jonah thought this was God's just recompense for the evil of Nineveh. This is the message that he wanted to preach. But in his case, God sent him to preach another message. He, certainly it was a harsh one, 40 days, and God will destroy Nineveh. But God in his long suffering and in his patience relented there. There was apparently they drew from that message that 40 days is a window. And we don't know whether that means destruction is certain or whether that means that God has given us a window. We have no idea. But nevertheless, we're going to throw ourselves upon our knees and repent in sackcloth and ashes, even to the animals in, in Nineveh. And so because of that response to that warning from God through the prophet Jonah, God relented in regards to the calamity that he had declared upon Nineveh. And we know from Nahum, it's 100, between 115 to 150 years later, that Nineveh had forgotten that repentance. Maybe that generation that heard the warning and heard the preaching of Jonah had died away, and maybe their children had not taken seriously 
or didn't have a personal experience of such an experience and they drifted back into even a worse life than they were living before. And when we get to the book of Nahum, patience has run out. Mercy is to be no more extended. And there is a declaration here going out from the prophet Nahum to Nineveh that their condemnation, their judgment is imminent and upon them. And that's what we've been talking about. In chapter 3, it seems as though Nahum brings his prophecy to a close. In some ways, it's, it's, it's summary in regards to what he's already spoken to us. And in other ways, it adds even more intensity to the, to the final judgment of Nineveh. By the way, uh, the more I read in the minor prophets and reading ahead as we try to go through the minor prophets, uh, please don't overlook the parallels in modern culture today. Uh, if these nations were ripe for the judgment of God in that generation, it's hard for me to imagine that our nation and even the nations of this world are much less or somehow less ripened for a similar judgment. So the world ought to take notice of the prophets and of God's dealing with wicked nations in the past. There is a precedent set here that God will not long suffer and endlessly suffer wickedness. It is not beyond his power and his sovereignty, and he may use it instrumentally to do a million things in the universe, but it will not last forever. At some point, apart from the returning away and the repentance of those people, God's judgment will come upon them in full force. I've said before, God judges sin ultimately in one of two places, either in Christ for the believer or the unbeliever will take the judgment upon himself, him and his nation altogether. And that's what really rings clear in Nahum. So let's read chapter 3 together. And I'll share a few thoughts with you this morning. Woe to the bloody city, completely full of lies and pillage. Her prey never departs. The noise of the whip and the noise of the rattling of the wheel, galloping horses and bounding chariots, horsemen charging, swords flashing, spears gleaming, many slain, a mass of corpses and countless dead bodies. They stumble over the dead bodies, all because of the many harlotries of the harlot. The charming one, the mystery, mistress of sorceries who sells nations by her harlotries and families by her sorceries. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. I will lift up your skirts over your face and show to the nations your nakedness and to the kingdoms your disgrace. I will throw filth on you and make you vile and set you up as a spectacle. And it will come about that all who see you will shrink away from you and say, Nineveh is devastated. Who will grieve for her? Where will I seek comforters for you? Are you better than No Ammon, which was situated by the rivers, waters of the Nile, with water surrounding her, whose rampart was the sea, whose wall consisted of the sea? Ethiopia was her might, and Egypt too, without limits. Put and Lubin were among her helpers, yet she became an exile. She went into captivity. Also, her small children were dashed to pieces at the head of every street. They cast lots for her honorable men, and all her great men were bound with fetters. You too will become drunk. You will be hidden 
You too will search for a refuge from the enemy. All your fortifications, fortifications are fig trees with ripe fruit. When shaken, they fall into the eater's mouth. Behold, your people are women in your midst. The gates of your land are open wide to your enemies. Fire consumes your gate bars. Draw for yourself water for the siege. Strengthen your fortifications. Go into the clay and tread the mortar. Take hold of the brick mold. There, fire will consume you. The sword will cut you down. It will consume you as the locust does. Multiply yourselves like creeping locusts. Multiply yourselves like the swarming locusts. You have increased your traders more than the stars of heaven. The creeping locust strips and flies away. The guardsmen, your guardsmen are like the swarming locusts. Your marshals are like hordes of grasshoppers settling in the stone walls on a cold day. The sun rises and they flee. And the place where they are is not known. Your, your shepherds are sleeping, O king of Assyria. Your nobles are lying down. Your people are scattered on the mountains and there is no one to regather them. And then this final dreadful statement, there is no relief for your breakdown. Your wound is incurable. All who hear about you will clap their hands over you for on whom has not your evil passed continually. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you for the frightening nature of these words. Even for the believer who is standing on firm ground in Christ, Father, we need to be reminded of the peril of where we once were as unbelievers and how, how at any moment this judgment could be said of us in those days. And Father, we are secure in Christ, but Father, by remembering that peril, perhaps the believer in our midst today will get a greater grasp of the treasure we have in Christ as we've been singing already this morning. And Father, I pray as well that for those who are outside of Christ, this is a description of the peril they face moment by moment every, every day of their life apart from Jesus. Paul tells us in the book of Romans that the kindness of God leads us to repentance, but to resist that is to store up this wrath. Father, it is not unexhausted on behalf of those apart from Christ. It is being reserved. And Lord, it is a frightening, terrifying reality to think that apart from Jesus Christ, if that person goes into eternity apart from Christ, that the fullness of that wrath stored up every day of their lives will suddenly be poured upon them without end eternally. And so, Father, I pray that by your spirit you would speak to the encouragement and the warning of believers today and to the warning of those outside of Christ. These are true words. These events really happened. There was a nation completely destroyed whose wickedness spread to the uttermost parts of the earth. There was a compensation. There was a recompense for such wickedness and refusal to turn to Christ. So help us this morning, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. I thought about this third chapter, as I said, sort of a summary as well, and I do want to share from Hebrews 3 tonight because I think there's a specific application for believers. But I'm thinking in terms of the, the, the nation of Nineveh or the city of Nineveh, the nation of Assyria this morning, and I, I just want to think about their ruin 
because it is really extraordinary. If you read any historical narratives of, of Nineveh and Assyria in general, they were, there was nothing even remotely able to challenge the power and authority and wealth and luxury of, of Assyria, and particularly Nineveh as the capital city. The whole living humanity in those days would have thought it inconceivable altogether that anyone could possibly ever bring down Assyria and much less the capital city of Nineveh. In fact, so arrogant and exalted they were in their power that even as God was raising up uh, the Babylonians uh, to their south, they were completely unawares of that it seems or oblivious to the fact that God was even at that moment raising up an adversary who would come to pass to render God's judgment upon the nation of Assyria and there was just a real warning for that to me the nations in power today ourselves included and those who are rising to power we think of ourselves as isolated or somehow set on a hill and impenetrable. We have the greatest military might. We have the, the greatest intelligence apparatus. We, we can dig down deep all around the world and anticipate things coming. And we think of ourselves, particularly as Americans, as untouchable. Nobody can touch us in the world. The supreme military. That's why I had some reservations a couple of years back when the there was the, throne, the, the ideal of uh, America being an exceptional nation thrown around, and I understand what that means, and indeed we are an exception to the nations of the world, but some people use that almost to, to imply that we were somehow in a, uh, inapproachable. No one could even dare rise to the level that it would be necessary to defeat this nation. Let me just say with all of my heart, if historical precedent is true and Nineveh fell and Assyria was defeated by Babylon, then America or any other nation is not immune to the same thing happening. And we ought to take that deadly serious, especially as Americans and especially as Christians. So I wanted to share with you this morning just some ideas or thoughts regarding the ruin of Nineveh. The first is the cause of that ruin. You see that, I think, ultimately in verse 1 where he says here, the bloody city. The bloody city. The implication is that it's filled with blood. It is established upon the shedding of blood. It is a violent, murderous, a complete disregard for human life, merciless and without compassion. I've said uh, later you'll find out that Babylon had a little bit different strategy, although they were equally as violent and murderous, but they had a different strategy. They would go in, take the people captive, deport them all around, and sort of acclimate all the nations under the Babylonian rule. But the Assyrians, at the early part of their zenith, or their rise to power, and at their zenith, their, their only strategy was to brutalize and to, by sheer terror, bring the nations under their sovereign hand and under their power. And you can imagine that the capital city of Nineveh was filled with people who had just been cowed down into fear and were getting along with Assyria and the Ninevites simply out of the realization that to do anything otherwise would, be, would lead to certain brutal, ruthless death. They were merciless this is part of the cause of this judgment upon Nineveh, is that they were a bloody city. 
Now, we may not in America be that sort of ruthless type of people. We haven't certainly from our foundation, but it seems as though just by our disposition and nature and policies, we become more and more of a bloody nation. What about a nation that executes in the womb 60 million children? That is a bloody nation. A bloody nation. And if you count the murder and the rising violence in our nation today, are we not, could we not also be thought of as a bloody city, a bloody nation? That's the cause, one of the causes of God's bringing final now judgment upon Nineveh. They were a bloody city. If you want to really explore that, do a little historical research into the Assyrians and the brutality. They would literally impale men, enemies, upon spikes and line the streets with them as a, as a warning to anyone coming and going of the brutality of the Assyrian Empire. They were not ashamed to, to ravage the human body so long as it provoked fear and terror in the hearts of those whom they planned to subjugate. I imagine that some of the smaller, weaker nations, the Assyrians' reputation was so fearful that many of those never even put up a fight. They yielded immediately to that because of fear of the brutality of the Assyrians. They were a bloody city. Not only that, but he says there, completely full of lies. Don't overlook that completely full. Lies and pillage. They were a city full of lies. It was a city where deception became institutionalized, as it were, full of lies. The rich and the powerful trafficked in deception to further enrich themselves and to entrench themselves in these lofty places of power. The city was saturated with deception. It was the rule of the day. It suggests to me that to, to find an honest man in Nineveh would be an extremely, almost impossible thing to do. The city was full of lies. Deception all around. Every man sought to seek advantage over his neighbor. And everybody was climbing the ladder to the more prosperous and comfortable and luxurious places in this kingdom. Every man was covering his tracks lest he offend the wrong person and he himself be brutalized. The whole city was built upon deception. And can you imagine, by the way, the paranoia that would be filling the city because of that? You don't know if they're telling you the truth or not. And if they're deceiving you, they may be about to explain you and to run over top of you and to destroy you to gain a higher position themselves. There is no trust, no integrity, no, no capacity for honesty in this city. It is corrupt to the core with deception. Do I need to say any more as a description of America today? I mean, it's gotten so bad that you don't know who's telling the truth anymore. In fact, you can almost assume that whoever's saying it, even if there's an element of truth, it's being spun in such a way as to accomplish an agenda that you wouldn't agree with. I don't, I don't trust any of the parties anymore to speak the truth. They all seem to be perverted in some way, and it's the whole city is filled with lies. And it's undermining the trust of the people. And when you lose the trust of the people, they, they begin to resist. And then there's tension now between the government and the governed. And all of a sudden, this can explode into some sort of chaos. And there's a precarious place to be. God brought His judgment upon Nineveh because the city was saturated with lies. Lies. 
I thought about that this week and I thought, what a, what a terrible thing it would have been to be an honest man and try to live in Nineveh. Because if you're honest, it's going gonna, it's gonna to make you vulnerable to the exploitation of those who are liars and those who are deceiving if you're honest and you speak the truth into a situation, it might very well have costed you your life. And in fact, I'm sure it did if you spoke against the powers that be in Nineveh. But God's mercy has run out. The city full of lies. The judgment of God has come now upon this city saturated with lies. He says as well that it's full of pillage. A city who by violence pillaged the nations and brought their wealth to themselves. A city made mighty and luxurious upon the labors and wealth and the suffering of others. Maybe even their own citizenry as, as Assyrians. I'm sure there were lower class and weaker class people that could not resist the powers that be. And they exploited them. They enslaved them. They did all sorts of things to exploit the wealth from there. Here is a city whose very foundation and the luxury that it displayed was all pillaged from other nations and others other than themselves. By power, by force, by bloodshed, by deception, they went into the nations and they plundered the nations and they brought all the wealth of the nations that they could gather into the city of Nineveh. And those Ninevites who lived there were all rejoicing in the proceeds of that pillaging. And I'm sure that they got to a certain point to where it was ignored that it was pillaged at all and they were rejoicing in the fact that they had such plenty and perhaps even praise their gods for it and it was from the nations it wasn't theirs they took it by force they didn't bargain for it they didn't negotiate or trade for it it wasn't a it wasn't a back and forth trade it was sheer power you have something valuable we are more powerful we want what you have therefore yield it up or we will take it by force and they filled the city full of such things as that bloody, full of lies and full of this pillaging. Notice he says there as well her, her, as well, her prey never departs. They're, they're always preying upon those of lesser power, her prey, those whom, upon whom she fattens herself. That is a dreadful, dreadful analogy or illustration of human beings. That's what he's saying. The, the human beings upon whom she fattens herself never depart. They are always there. They are always in the world. And she is always looking to fatten herself upon the flesh of humanity. Her prey never departs. She's never without some weaker human being to devour for her own satisfaction and to satisfy the flesh, the fleshly lusts of those in power in Nineveh. This is a bloody city. I hope you get the implications here and the heaviness of this. This is not just a city astray. This is a city who not merely 120 years earlier had repented at the preaching of Jonah and who had stopped, even by the historical record, stopped their aggression for a small period. But now they had returned to the very same habits and they had grown intense, more intense. And now the whole world to them was to be devoured by their power. And they thought themselves incapable of being resisted. This is Nineveh. 
When you think about this, I'm a little more sympathetic to Jonah, aren't you? When I thought about this, I thought, no wonder Jonah wanted it destroyed. Even in Jonah's time, it was a wicked nation. How much more now, 150 years later, are they deserving of this condemnation and this judgment of God? No wonder Jonah was upset when God relented because if there was ever a nation that deserved the judgment of God, he felt Nineveh was it. I don't think Jonah was self-righteous. I think he just observed the wickedness of this city in his day. And now 150 years later, Nahum has come to deliver the message that God's mercy has been exhausted for Nineveh. The judgment has come upon them. Notice as well in verse 4, he mentions here as well a call because of the many harlotries of the harlot, the charming one, the mistress of sorcerers, who sells nations by her harlotries and families by her sorceries. It's interesting here because the first images here are sheer brutality and force and power and deception. But then he shifts here. Not only is she wicked on that side, but she's wicked on the other side. The idea of a harlot here is one who, by outward appearance, makes herself attractive as she can, desirable, one to satisfy the passions, one that can bring pleasure. She portrays herself this way, and by this harlotry, she exploits the nations. She draws them in and only, only later to find out the defilement that the garments of the harlot are covering. Later on when he says, I will lift her skirt above her head, that's a graphic illustration that she is dressed and she looks desirable and pleasurable and she looks wonderful and beautiful and charming. But part of the judgment is God's going to pull up her skirt and reveal how defiled she is. This is Nineveh. She wasn't taking nations and consuming human flesh by sheer power and force, but she was charming them. She, she displayed her wealth and her riches and her luxury, and she made promises to the nations that join us and come under our subjection, and you can enjoy all the pleasures of sin, all the pleasures of sin for a season. And many of the nations bought into that, and they came, came along only to find out that they had been subjugated by a brutal empire don't think that don't think that the that wickedness will always manifest itself in power and violence and murderous sometimes it manifests itself in these subtle appeals to the fleshly and carnal nature in humanity we are filled with a world trying to charm us to be enticed by the pleasures of sin for a moment for a day for a season Look around in our nation today. That promise of that pleasure is drawing millions and even drawing now folks within the walls of the church. And they are, they are finding a way to accommodate this satisfaction of carnal pleasures while at the same time sanctifying it with some sort of religious jargon or religious vocabulary. Already this nation is charming people by her harlotries, not only here in this nation, but around the world. We'll bring, we'll bring American prosperity to you. We'll make you like the West. We'll make you wealthy and rich and have the highest standard of living in the world if you will but embrace our, our ideologies. And I don't mean by that American principles. I mean wrong ideologies. 
That's the promise of this world today. So these are some of the causes mentioned in verse 19, the very last phrase there. This is a real large summary of the cause as well. But he says of Nineveh there in that last sad phrase, for on whom has not your evil passed? God's bringing his judgment upon Nineveh because their evil now has expanded into all the known world as it were. Upon whom has your evil not passed? You have infected all the nations with your evil. And it's over. And it's not going to be done any further. You have come to the end of the mercy of God and the, and the long-suffering and the forbearance of God. And you have rejected your only avenue of escape, which is Christ. And having rejected Him, there is nothing left to you but utter destruction. Upon whom has your evil not passed? There was a time when I think as Americans we could, we could take some comfort in fact that America was a beacon for freedom and those Christian Judeo principles and morality went out into the world and, and it had good effect in the world and brought freedom in a lot of places. But I'm not so sure we're exporting that anymore. Today it seems to me that we're exporting our own perversions and corruptions. We want the whole world to unite with us in our disgusting perversions and embrace all that is wicked about fallen America. And I'm convinced that one of these days God's long suffering and forbearance is going to run out for this nation and even for this world. No great power has in and of itself and by its own power the ability to stand in, in the face of God Almighty. He will bring an end to those things, and he certainly is here. So that's the cause of their ruin. But look at the instrument of their ruin. We touched on that in chapter 2 as well, but we know it historically to be Babylon. But it's described in chapter 2 as the one who scatters, has come up before you, and describes their warrior, their warrior-like uh, attitude, this great nation. In fact, he, he kind of gives a description of that in verse 2 and 3, this enemy that comes against them. Notice the graphic nature of this. Again, this is the vision of Nahum. It's almost as if he's seeing this panoramic view before his eyes of God's destruction of, of Nineveh. And, he's, and he's, almost, he's almost being a reporter on what's unfolding before his eyes. And that's the imagery here. The noise of the whip. Think about this in your imagination. The whip driving those chariots and their horses. The noise of the rattling of those wheels. The galloping horses on those cobblestone streets. And, and, and the bounding chariots all over the place. Running over bodies and everything else. Horsemen charging. Swords flashing. That means they're active. Spears gleaming. And then he gives this summary. Many slain, mass of corpses, and countless dead bodies. They stumble over the dead bodies. This mighty nation, this mighty city, untouchable, inapproachable, immune from, immune from falling, Existing by their own strength and by the sheer terror of what they were willing to do to hold to power. This is the vision of what's happening within the city walls of that great city. Oh, how great the ruin of Nineveh. Now an invading army has broken through the walls in the vision of Nahum. And they are riding through the street, slaying as they go in chariots, running over some, crushing others. Others lance with these great spears. Blood piling up, bodies piling up, the chariots running over 
over those children, dash, adults, seniors, everybody is being disintegrated in the midst of this great onslaught of judgment. And that's exactly the imagery Nahum wants them to understand. This is the severity of the judgment of God Almighty. Let me just insert here with all of my heart, God is not to be trifled with. He is too dangerous for that. Too dangerous for that. Our only approach to Him, to even come into His presence, is through the shed blood of Christ. You dare not approach Him apart from that blood, or else you will experience a similar wrath all upon you. He is not to be trifled with. And with all my heart again, the church in our day does nothing but trifle with Him. They made Him little bitty. And they made themselves massive. He exists for their satisfaction, not they for His. We've turned the world upside down. And I don't know that we're much farther away from meriting the judgment of God than Nineveh was. So that's the cause. But the instrument of their ruin was a foreign nation. By the way, it wasn't a godly nation. God would judge them eventually too for their brutality. So, so don't think that God is, is somehow limited to raise up a Christian army somewhere to defeat the enemy. God will utilize an enemy even more evil than the one he's destroying for the moment to accomplish his purposes, which was the destruction of Nineveh. And God would use that same Babylon for the discipline of his own people and later judge that Babylon for their cruelty in the midst of it through the Medes and the Persians and on down through history we go. God is not a man that he would be limited such as we are. But all things are under the sovereign power of God Almighty to accomplish what he proposes in the secret counsels of his will and what he has revealed as well. So there is an instrument of their ruin. Kind of descriptive of that as well as the catastrophe of their ruin. I've already touched on that in three, verse 3 there. But also look at verse 11 through 14. He speaks of Nineveh here after giving them the example of Noamon, which would be the city of Thebes. But he says to them, after giving that example, you too will become drunk. The ideal there is not party drunk, celebrating drunk. The party here is staggering drunk, unable to see clearly, unable to think clearly, overwhelmed by confusion. That ideal of drunk, the worst drunk you can ever imagine. He says of Nineveh, you too, like Thebes, who thought they were immovable, like them, you too will become drunk. You will be hidden. Nobody will be able to find you. You too will search for a refuge from the enemy. All your fortifications are fig trees with ripe fruit. I love this imagery because it's so graphic, but they're like fig trees with ripe fruit and you come up and you shake them and all the figs fall out into the hands of the person shaking the tree. In this case, Babylon's going to shake the fig tree of Nineveh. And she's ripe. And she's full of fruit. And Nineveh and Babylon's going to come up and shake and rattle the tree. And all the fruit of Nineveh is going to fall right into the hands of the Babylonians. Because they're just as greedy as you were, Nineveh. So this is their catastrophe. He says, behold, when this happens, even the... The women, verse 13, behold, your people are women in your midst. The idea there is that uh, speaking in terms of the weakness 
or the inability to fend off such an attack. All your brave, mighty warriors with their great armors and their great lances and swords and all their chariots, they all become as women subject to the ravishes of a greater enemy. They are, they are, they are courageless. They are fearful and trembling now. This is where you're going. He says of the gates of their land, they're open wide to your enemies. Nineveh was a very fortified city but, and, and would have been believed to have been able to keep any enemy out. But he says, no, no, no. In this judgment, the gates are thrown wide open. That's how the chariots and the swordsmen and the lancemen got inside the gate in his vision. God threw the gates open. And the enemy is now having his way in the impenetrable city of Nineveh. He says, fire consumes your gate bars. Verse 14, he tells them almost in a mockery here, draw for yourself water for the street, strengthen your fortifications, go into the city and tread the mortar and build bricks and make it sticker. Take hold of the brick mold. He says, there, even there, fire will consume you. The sword will cut you down. It will consume you as the locust does. Catastrophic is the fall of Nineveh. Catastrophic is the judgment of God when mercy has reached its end and the justice of God comes to bear. Catastrophic is the consequences of that apart from Christ. I read this and I was reading in the other minor prophets and I almost thought to myself, the prophet under the inspiration of God is doing his best to use words to paint the images that he's beholding in his vision. But it seems to me that even these will fall short of the judgment of God poured out in eternity. It's a frightening thing. It's a terrifying thing. The catastrophe of their ruin. Look at the completeness of their ruin as well. You see that in verse 1. Uh, where it speak, speaks of the woe there in regards to the bloody city. He's pronouncing this woe upon them, but also verses 7 and 8. It will, become, it will come about that all who see you will shrink from you. Those who used to come in masses to Nineveh to enjoy its splendor, all who knew you and see you will flee from you. And they'll be saying, verse 7, Nineveh, it's almost shock, Nineveh is devastated. Can you imagine the rumors that spread throughout the nations? Nineveh, Assyria's kingdom, capital city, obliterated, and unthinkable. Nineveh is devastated, they will cry. But then he says this, who's going to grieve for her? I thought that's the trouble with, uh, with gaining dominion by oppression. Because whenever judgment finally comes, who is there to mourn? Your evil went out into all the forces, all the nations of the earth. You exploited and subjugated all these nations, murdered their wives and their children and their husbands and their parents. You, you, you got what you got by this violence and brutality. And when finally your judgment comes, there is no one to mourn. No one will be, no one will be grieving her. Some might even secretly be saying good riddance of such an evil place. Such is the judgment and justice of God upon wickedness. There will be nobody to mourn. You think about the eternal judgment where the final days have come and God wraps it up as it were. And justice comes upon the unbelieving and they will spend eternity in a hell. They cannot die for that would not pay the debt they owe in their sin against the holy God. So there is an eternity of dying. A dying but never dying for eternity. And in all of that suffering there will not be a single, there will not be a single person grieving them. 
Can you think of such a sad place to be? Not, not any mercy. No one with a feeling of compassion about all those upon whom the judgment of God has fallen. Because those in the presence of God in that moment will recognize the glory and the holiness of God. And such will be the realization of that, that the justness of their condemnation will far overpower any mourning in regards to them. They will have received in that moment what they have earned. And but for the grace of God and for the blood of Christ, we would be there with them. And all of eternity will be praised him for the glory. I've seen some of your hands come up this morning singing those hymns. Oh, every hand will go up in that day. Because such will be the price and the treasure of mercy. This is the judgment of Nineveh. The completeness of that judgment. You see it in verses 11 through 19 as well. I won't go through that for time's sake, but then the last one here. I want you to see the, the composer of their ruin. You see that in chapter 2, verse 13, where it says, So now, God says, I will break his yoke bar from upon you. He says in the same verses, God says that he is against them. Verse 13 of chapter 2, Behold, I am against you. And then again, you see it in chapter 3, verse, verse 5. It's, it's Babylon that's come up and who's ravaging the city of Nineveh. But who is the composer of this justice? Who is the composer of this judgment upon the city of Nineveh? The prophet, God through the prophet confesses, God himself is the composer of this judgment upon the nations, upon Nineveh. And so it may be that God may use a multiple number of instruments, one instrument or many other instruments to bring his judgment upon a nation. But in back of the activities of those nations, righteous or not, is a God Almighty who is sovereign in regards to those things and who is just and holy and righteous and who is merciful. And thank God for his mercy if you're a believer today. That's why I said the songs we sang this morning for the believer should give you a safe place to stand as you consider this. But if you are not in Christ, there is no safe place to stand. There isn't one. You are right now in peril of falling into death and into eternity where you will receive the fullness of God's judgment that is justly warranted for every sin you've ever committed from your infancy to this very day. Every act of rebellion against this holy God and all the wrath of God that that is deserving of is being stored up even at this very moment. The only thing between you and not experiencing that is Christ and the next heartbeat. That's how close it is. And that's a terrifying thing to think about. But it's something we ought to think about very seriously. And, and believer, if you're here, it ought to make you and I treasure mercy all the more. It ought to drive us to the cross where we fall on our faces and we understand there, there is no merit in this fleshly man whatsoever, nothing but the sovereign grace of God Almighty who reached down into the depth of the grave and raised a man up and gave him new life for his own name's sake and for his glory's sake, not to, not to exalt the man. Not to demonstrate some value in him, but to demonstrate the value and the infinite glory of God Almighty. The peril of judgment ought to make us treasure that sort of grace as a believer. And I pray that you are a believer this morning. Stand with me. This. Father, we thank you for your word.
Lord, we thank you. I thank you for the very, the trembling I feel even in speaking it. For though I am secure and safe in Christ and so is every believer here, Father, we also recognize that in many ways the roots of the same sins that manifest themselves in Nineveh and are manifested around us today, those same roots might still exist in our own hearts, pride and self-sufficiency, pleasure-seeking. Father, I pray that by your grace you would continue to, as Paul said, through Christ that we might be crucified daily and that we might live more fully in the new man day by day, bearing fruits of the Spirit for the sake of your name, for the glory of your name, and that we might not be drawn again to the works of the flesh and thereby put ourselves in a perilous place. Lord, I pray that our nation would hear such sermons as these, such precedents as these, and be reminded that no matter how great our power may be, we may have the nuclear power to destroy the world, but Father, there is a greater power, it is yours, in under whose power the world exists. Not a single, single nuclear warhead could be ignited apart from your sovereign will. And so Father, there is a greater God and a greater fear to be known in this world. We pray that you might make it known first in the church and later in the world. Have these ways in this, your way in these moments of invitation we ask in Jesus' name for his sake and glory. Amen.